Welcome, everybody. I'm Richard Krause. I hope that you're doing well, that you're staying happy, healthy, and safe. I'm excited for today's show, so let's not mess around here at the top of the show. Let's get right at it. Later on, we're going to meet Eric McCormack. He is a talented and versatile actor who has played roles as diverse as Will Truman on the NBC sitcom Will and Grace, to Grant McLaren in the Netflix show Travelers, and Dr. Daniel Pierce in the TNT crime drama Perception. In his new coming-of-age movie, Drinkwater, he plays Hank, a small-town dad who didn't quite live up to his potential. It's something new for Eric McCormack, something we haven't seen him do before. And with its subplot about a Wayne Gretzky rookie card, some physical comedy in a Tim Hortons drive through and a great Zamboni scene, it brings Eric McCormack back to Canada in probably the most Canadian movie to come out so far this year. More on that just a little bit later on. First, though, while we're on the Canadian theme, let's talk hockey. Specifically, Brian Trottier. He is a Canadian former professional hockey center who played 18 seasons in the National Hockey League for the New York Islanders and the Pittsburgh Penguins. He won four Stanley Cups with the Islanders, two with the Penguins, and one as an assistant coach with the Colorado Avalanche. His new memoir, All Roads Home, A Life On and Off the Ice, is a poignant and inspiring memoir of the people and challenges that helped shape his life and career. In this interview, we'll talk about some of those influences. We'll also talk about growing up in a town of just 500 people and how he celebrated his first Stanley Cup win. You want to hear that story. Stick around for that. Brian Trottier, join me via Zoom. You grew up in Val Marie, Saskatchewan. It's a town of about, or at the time, about 500 people. I've read about it in your book, and you talk about it being such a great place to grow up. What was it that made it great? Well, I think I think my buddies, I think uh, my cousin Larry, I think uh, we had some family there, grandma and grandpa. I think the town was small enough, yet big enough and active enough, vibrant enough. Um the curling rink, skating rink, uh, there was lots of lots of kids, so we had lots of activities for kids. School was busy. Every parent, you know, seemed to like each other. There was a, a kind of a community-minded group of people that were really kind of like grab hold mm-hmm. of the rope and make things happen. I, I really enjoyed it. It was a fun little town. And you grew up in a big family. You've got four siblings. Were you competitive with your brothers and sisters? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> <laughs> Second oldest, um, you know, my brothers were much younger. Uh, I used my sisters a lot as goaltenders, uh, <laughs> skating buddies, and, uh, you know, they're good ball players and, you know, taught them how to, taught them how to throw a ball, catch a ball. And, yeah, when you when you have a family, you, you kind of, when you're living out in the country, you kind of lean on each other to, to have activities and ride horses and, you know, chase the chickens and get eggs <laughs> and all those wonderful things, you know, work the garden. Uh, but we had, uh, I think you learn a lot, life lessons, you know, without, I think, mom and dad even teaching us, you know, just, oh, let's go work in the garden. Oh, let's go get these chores done. Oh, let's go do this. Oh, let's go do that. We, time to go check the cows, you know, just <laughs> battle the horses. And, and, and you know, we're doing all this stuff at a young age. And, you know, we thought, you know, this is how you get it done. And then, you know, we all, we all pitched in. And it seems to me from reading the book that you've been playing hockey for almost as long as you could walk. I mean, you were just eight years old when you started minor hockey in Val Marie. So uh, you must have been playing for a little while before that. Uh, was there a real hockey culture in town or in your family? 
Well, hockey, I think, is a fabric of every little town and every community in Canada. It's such a big part of our culture in general. And we take such pride in it. I'm always proud when, you know, people say hockey is Canada's gift to the world. And when I look back and, and I look at our little town, yes, the senior hockey was really good. It was very competitive. And, there, you know, guys, some guys skated, but they didn't have full equipment, you know, um, didn't have helmets. Um, you know, but they skate like lightning and pass fast and quick and all those kids wanted to be like them and then all of a sudden they got a senior team they all had the same uniforms then they had uh, minor hockey and we all got uniforms but prior to that there was no minor hockey um i learned how to skate on the creek out by our house um i was eight when they started minor hockey in town and in the book you see our first team our, our first misfit uh, uh, hockey team uh, i think we're all like eight nine ten years old and uh, none of us had the same gear. Maple Leaf, Montreal, some kids had a parka, some kids had no 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 hockey gloves, uh, but we were having the time of our life. I didn't have a helmet my first year. And, uh, but you know, that was just early minor hockey in those days, but learning on, on the river, no, I, I skated on the river and started uh, playing hockey when I was eight. Dad showed me how to hold a stick right-handed but I turned into a left-handed hockey player, go figure. Um, so I learned everything righty, how to shoot a puck, how to stick handle, how to pass. I get a sense from hearing you talk about the minor league team that you played on, and then from reading the book, that teamwork is everything for you. Well, well, I had a lot of fun com competing. Like, I, I enjoyed track and field, and but I really enjoyed the the team sports. To me, the team sports were more a lot more fun, where I could pass a puck or kick a soccer ball to somebody or bump the volleyball to somebody or basketball. It seemed like the team sports were more fun. Yeah. I enjoy a round of golf, but you're with buddies and yeah, you have a little competition amongst yourself, but the team sports were a lot more fun. Um, I rely on people you, you, you're relied on, you become dependable. And again, you build a trust and a bond and hockey was really good that way. Um, you know, uh, and I think, we all learn life lessons from sport and I, I thought hockey was just fantastic. And yeah, I, I enjoyed like all my minor hockey and my buddies and my friends. They're still my friends. They're still my best friends and uh, junior hockey, Tiger Williams. Yeah. Still friends, still best friends and New York, my buddies, my friends, still best friends. And I think that's fantastic because we've all built a trust and we rely on each other. We depend. And through that, you win, you have some successes and, you overcome some challenges and uh, you just build such a wonderful friendship. I love how you write about, and, and I've heard you speak about Jean Beliveau a number of times. And it warms my heart that when you were a, a little kid, you saw him win the Stanley Cup and said, I want to win a Stanley Cup just like him. And of course, you went on to do that many times. But what was it about him that was such a, a draw for you? Well, John Belbo, I, I thought was the epitome of hockey at the time. He was tall. He was smooth. The way he stick handled, the way he looked on the ice, his hair was pristine. He he just looked so graceful. He 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 was. And then to watch Gordy Howe, we we saw a lot of Montreal and Toronto, and then we just see Detroit, see Gordy Howe. He's from Saskatchewan, and how smooth he had the best nickname, Mister Hockey. And my dad revered him and. You know, I, I just always thought to myself, you know, these these are the guys I want to look up to. These are my idols. These are the guys I want to aspire to be. I never played hockey like Gordie Howe or John Beliveau, but I, I tried to play like like them. And 
you know, when I played with Mario Lemieux, he was my Jean Beliveau. You're listening to Brian Trottier on The Richard Krause Show. His memoir, All Roads Home, A Life On and Off the Ice, is available now wherever fine books are sold. You know, you play with guys and you learn leadership and you watch great guys, great guys with character, the guys with skill, how they conduct themselves and they're humble. And at the same time, you know, they're, they're very confident and uh, they're, they're, they're leaders and uh, they lead by example and by, by inspiring. And uh, to me, you, there's always more than one leader in a locker room on a team and everybody's a leader, I think in, in some capacity, but there's always that one or two or three or five core group guys that are leaders. And, and, and you need that. The, the captain needs that. The, uh, the whole locker room needs, needs, needs leaders. And, you know, guys have different character. They bring something to the game and, you feel appreciated and worth. And that's what I love about the game. That's what I love about a team. Your friend, Dave Tiger Williams uh, wrote one of the postscripts uh, to your book, but he's also a, a, a crucial character in your life as well. Now you've been friends for a long time, but you say that you might've dropped out of hockey if not for him. How did that work? Well, T- Tiger and I have been friends for over 50 years. And, uh, you know, when you have somebody in your life, like Tiger, who's, uh, Who's, who's intense, great desire, but also has the biggest heart. Um, and, you, you know, he took a shine to me for some reason and vice versa. Uh, Tiger um, and I played junior hockey together and I, you know, he was my instructor to hockey camp. And two years later, I'm, I'm on the team with the Swift Current Broncos with them. He's, he's one of the veterans. I'm just a kid, 16 years old. And I'm getting pounded every night and hockey wasn't much fun. So I was homesick anyway. So at Christmas, I was just going to stay home and I really didn't tell anybody, my parents or no teammates or my coach or anybody. I just wasn't going back. And uh, through a snowstorm, Tiger came down and grabbed me and hauled me back to Swift Current. And I wasn't going, you know, I wasn't <laughs> happy about it, but you know, when I look back at it, I sure appreciate it because he would have hogtied me and threw me in the trunk. I'm sure if he had to, but <laughs> You know, dad just had the right words at the right time. He said, you can always come home. And it just softened me a little bit. And I jumped in the car and I matter in a hornet. I was going back. But when I got back, Tiger said he's going to play left wing with me. And no one touched me anymore. Like it's if they did, he beat the crap out of him. If they were my size or smaller, you know, he said, defend yourself. But if they were bigger than me, he said, no one's going to no one's going to touch you. And hockey was fun again. And Tiger and I played played hockey that year through the next year. And we got drafted the same year. And. I was pretty jealous of him when he went to the Leafs because I always wanted to play for the Maple Leafs. But uh, just a great, great friend, a great teammate. Um, we we spent a lot of time. He taught me how to grapple, how to protect myself, which was a big help. But he also, <laughs> his presence was always there, and it made me feel good. And, you know, when uh, when I won Stanley Cups, he was the first guy to call me up. And when mom and dad died, he was the first first guy to call me up. And good or bad, Tiger's always there, and I, I love him. When you get to the Islanders and you get that jersey and you've got your number and, you know, it's the biggest of the big time, how do you feel? Is there excitement? There's obviously excitement, but is it nerves? Is it cockiness? Uh, what what goes through your head? Well, it's a dream come true and, and you can't believe it. You're pinching yourself and you're saying, God, I can't believe I'm here. And you grab the jersey and they give, you know, you, you see the logo in the front and on New York Islanders and. You slip it on, you see Trache 19 on the back, and you think, <laughs> more 19, you know, who else? Pied McKenzie and Larry Robinson wears it. This is a great number. I'm 19 years old. I love this number. And, you know, and then I see Joe Sackett's worn it. Now you got Taves, you got Stevie Eisenman, some some 
great players have worn 19. So it's a wonderful sensation when that you can slide that jersey on and you can step on the ice and feel like you're part of the NHL. What's the biggest lesson, do you think, that you learned in that first year wearing that jersey? I, I, I believe with all my heart, I think the uh, you're part of something great. You're part of something that is, uh, that's team-oriented, and you're uh, a big part of the uh, – you're a small piece to a big part of it, and you want to take that responsibility big. We all respected each other, and we had value, and everybody felt like they were grabbing a hold of the rope, and you didn't want to let go of the rope. You didn't want to be the weakest link. Over the course of your career – starting from when you first saw John Beliveau hold up a, a Stanley Cup and say, I want to do that myself. You have seven of them, six as a player, one as, a, as an assistant coach. And that must be kind of a mind-blowing thing. If you step outside yourself for a second and look at that, that's that's pretty cool. The first time you win a Stanley Cup, obviously it's like another, it's the biggest dream for me. That was the only reason I wanted to play in the NHL was to win a Stanley Cup Uh Score a goal would be great to help your team win is all that fun stuff. Yeah. But uh, I want to win Stanley Cup. And then when that, that happens, that's my greatest moment. They're like Bobby Nystrom's overtime goal. People ask me, what's your greatest moment? It's when Bobby Nystrom scored the overtime goal. I had nothing to do with it. I was on the, on the, on the bench getting ready for my next shift and resting as fast as I could, like dad used to tell me. But um, it's my greatest moment. I was a champion instantly, like just like that. And uh, you want to go over and hug it. You want to, you want to feel the names that are engraved on it. You want to read the names of your John Bellabo and, you know, Stan Makita, Gordy Howe, Bobby Orr. And you want, and you can't believe they're going to put your name on it. It's going to be there forever. And you lift it up and how cool it is to touch and how heavy it actually is. It's 40 pounds. It's not a piece of tin mm-hmm. and you feel like weightlifter. And, you know, it's just, it just, uh, you know, the blood is rushing through your veins. It's it's like a like a, like a moment of ecstasy, and uh, you know the fans are going crazy. Your teammates are going crazy, and you're screaming at each other. You're crying. Guys are tearing up, and it's very very emotional. Um, and I I wanted to do it again and again and again. Like you don't want to lose that feeling of a championship. And I tell the story of riding behind Dad on a horse, and you know I always wanted something. The kids always want something. And Dad, how come I always want something? You know and and uh, he turned around quick in the saddle because I was behind him. He used to look back at me because I know just to shut me up, but it made sense to me. It was because if you stop wanting, you die. And I said, well, and I just shocked me back around to the saddle. And I was riding behind him. Oh, I was going to want something. And he said, just don't take anything for granted. Always want something. Want something more than everybody else and want it with your whole heart and go after it. And uh, that's what I did. I, I wanted to keep that feeling of a championship and that feeling of being holding the Stanley Cup, and uh, to be able to do it that many times, yeah, spectacular. You're listening to Brian Trottier on The Richard Krause Show. His memoir, All Roads Home, A Life On and Off the Ice, is available now wherever fine books are sold. I bumped into Henry Richard a few years ago, and he was fantastic. He was there. He was over in the corner all by himself, and I said, oh, my God, I got to go say hello. And I, Henry, 11 Stanley because what a wonderful career. Congratulations. He was still mad because he said, Brian, I should have 12. We should have beat Toronto Maple Leafs in 67. And I said, oh, my God, he has 11. He wanted 12. And that was me. You know, like, you can never have enough. It's just wonderful. They have, I think they have something like 21 Stanley Cups in the Richard family. There's never enough. Well, you took it home at least once, from what I understand. And I took I, it every I, You're right. We didn't have the day with the cup like they do now. Yeah. So we had to sneak it out. And. The first time I did it, we were at a country club, a Beaver Dam club. We're at, it's the end of the evening, and 
it was winding down. And I said to Bill Torrey, our general manager, I said, Bill, where's the cup going back tonight? He goes, we got the parade tonight. I'll come back to my house. I said, do you think I could take it home tonight and bring it to the parade? He goes, yeah, yeah, said, go ahead. So I snuck it by the keeper of the cup and threw it in the backseat of my car, <laughs> took it home, and I set it up at the end of the bed. We had a little dresser there, and I wanted to be be the first thing I saw when I opened my eyes. So <laughs> open the drape because the, the window faced to the and, and I figured the sun's going to hit that thing. It's going to be brilliant. And I, I couldn't have painted a better picture. I opened my eyes the next morning, and bada boom, that thing was shinier than I've ever seen. It was just a blaze. And uh, so that was my time with the cup. We took it home and had some fun pictures with family, a couple of neighbors, and we passed it around. We kind of hid it from the, the keeper of the cup for, because it, it had to go back for the, uh, for the awards banquet. So we only had it for maybe uh, five, six days at the time, but guys would get it for two or three hours and the keeper of the cup would come looking for us and say, Hey, where's that cup? We're like, oh, I'm not sure. I think so-and-so might have it, but I'll call him here. Here's his number. And we just kind of moved around so that it stayed as long as we could possibly have it. But now it's kind of nice. To, when I was in Colorado, I had it for a day and we took it up to the, the Continental Divide, took some pictures up in the Rockies and one of our favorite little lakes up there. And we had we had dinner. We had a steak dinner with Stanley. We put a, we put a, we put Stanley in the seat, bottom of steak, and we had <laughs> dinner with Stanley Cup. And people come by, does Stanley got a steak dinner in front of him? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we, you know, we're celebrating with our man Stanley. So That's uh, we had a wonderful day with with our with our with our friends and community in in Colorado. That's amazing. That's a great story. Um, finally, just I'll, I'll I'll let you go. But um, how would you compare the game from today, the way it's played today, as to when you were playing professionally? Man, the the shifts are shorter. The uh, the speed of the game. The players play all out for 30, 40 seconds. Uh, you know, the shifts are quick. Um, the speed of the game, I mean, what they can do at that, that there, there's more Gilbert Perrault's and Guy Lafleur's and Bobby Orr's on the ice now. They're all playing at high speed. Mm -hmm. Their skill level is so fast. Uh, their protection, protection they have, the gears, the, the sticks, the uh, technology of sticks and skates. My God, these kids are just fantastic athletes. They train, they train better probably. They they eat better. Nutrition's probably a lot better. Um I think uh, that's all good. You know, they're uh, they're like uh, like thoroughbreds on the ice. You know, they're just high, high, highly trained athletes, and it looks good on them. Um, I don't know. I I'm, I think they're in great hands. You know, just keep 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 on the path, kids, because I'll tell you that it's a great game to watch. I'd like to see more battles, but you know, the game is so fast and wide open now. There's not many battles in the corners, the front of the nets, as, as the olden days, yeah. but. You know, but it's still great hockey. Very, very entertaining. Well, Brian, thank you very much. Congratulations on the book. And uh, thank you for taking the time to speak to me today. Absolutely a pleasure. Thank you so much. It was a tribute to my mom and dad and all the people that helped me, helped me have all this wonderful, fun, success, achievements. And uh, I hope everybody enjoys the stories. Thank you. You've been listening to Brian Trottier on The Richard Krauss Show. His memoir, All Roads Home, A Life On and Off the Ice, is available now wherever fine books are sold. I'm excited to have Eric McCormack on the show. He became a star playing gay lawyer Will Truman on 246 episodes of the sitcom Will and Grace. That role earned him a Screen Actors Guild Award, Golden Globe nominations, and the Glad Media Awards Vanguard Award. 
Now, he may be best known for that role, but he's a versatile and talented actor with dozens of credits from the big and small screen and in the theater. His latest project is Drinkwater, a new Canadian comedy about a father and son in a small town in northern British Columbia. It's a coming-of-age story in the John Hughes tradition. Mike Drinkwater is lost. His father, Hank, played by Eric McCormack, is hardly the role model that Mike deserves. But when a young woman moves to town, their friendship gives them the courage to overcome all of their challenges. Eric McCormack, join me via Zoom. Congratulations on the film. Thank you. It's it's really, I was doing morning shows today and I thought, I haven't, I've not promoted a movie in, I don't know how long, maybe ever. You know, it's always television. So to actually have a film that lands in a movie theater, hopefully for longer than a week, is very exciting. It is exciting. And your character, Hank, is an interesting person. <laughs> uh, let's talk a little bit about Hank, because I don't want to give away a lot about happens in the film but as as odd as he might be at first blush as ridiculous as he might be at first blush you still feel for him so tell us what we need to know about hank and how you built that character well it's a father-son story the drink waters hank and, and his son mike it's very much mike's story sort of living in his father's shadow and not in the good way. His father's shadow is rather pathetic. He never <laughs> never really got out of Penticton, worked at the mill. His glory, he had, didn't even have glory days. It was really <laughs> one glory day where he was the backup goalie for the Penticton Vs. And uh, I read the part and I thought, obviously I thought about my son and I, but I thought about my wife's family who used to summer in Penticton. <laughs> and I just knew this guy. This guy reminded me of... Not, not in a ne'er-do-well kind of way, but just the sound of him, I thought, was Janet's uncle or her brother. There's that that sort of northern BC sort of sound. And I and I knew I needed a Burton Cummings mustache. I just knew I did. It just <laughs> begged for it. In fact, I even sketched, I read it, I sketched what I wanted to look like with the aviator frames and and the uh, and the mustache. And the first meeting I had on Zoom, because it was two years ago, with, uh, with the director, I showed him. And that's literally what I look like in the movie. And tell me about finding the voice. You say he's modeled after people you know, but he's got a very distinctive way of speaking. And I, I love there's a one point in the film where he, he says charade rather than charade. <laughs> and it's such a funny little throwaway moment, I guess. But it really made me laugh. Well, that makes me happy because that was mine. I just uh, <laughs> I did one take and Steve said, I think it's charade. And I said, of course it's charade. But I have the feeling <laughs> that Hank, uh, might think himself highfalutin enough to say charade. Um, yeah, he just, uh, there's, a, there's a, he, he, the uncle, Janet's uncle, uh, Donnie. Donnie used to sort of talk like that and, and, he, and he'd laugh at, he'd laugh at things that weren't even funny. Like he'd say, oh, look at me. Uh, uh, I'm talking on the phone. <laughs> and uh, so I just thought he's that guy. And and the fun part about Hank is that he is ripping off the government. He, he took uh, disability from the mill five years ago and he's fine. In fact, he's quite athletic, but he continues to wear a neck brace and drive around town on a on a little as if he can't walk. And it's just a it's a charade. And uh, and uh, it's it just made me laugh to think that that he he accuses everybody else, the teachers and whatever, of rip, <laughs> ripping off the government when he is the, the biggest example of of just a lazy citizen. But I got the sense that like his son, Hank's not stupid. 
he just didn't excel in life. Yeah, I think Hanks, I mean, it's, I've always had this conversation with, with my wife who definitely left home to pursue the business and met me and we left home. But I mean, a lot of her friends and her family stayed home, whether home mm. be Edmonton or Northern BC. And, and the idea of, like there's the other character in the film that um, uh, Bob Frazier plays who stayed but became a millionaire. He has the car dealership. He's the he's the kid that that could and uh, and Hank stayed and didn't excel. And I think there's that there's that low self-esteem that that comes with with uh, nothing. I never made anything of myself. Mm. And I that's exactly what Mike's feeling at the top of the movie. It's just I he just wants to get to university. He just wants to get accepted somewhere and break out. Yeah, neither of them. I, th I think Hank mostly just depressed that his, that his wife left him and he's uh, living this sad little life. You're listening to Eric McCormack on The Richard Krause Show. His new film, Drinkwater, is in theaters now. And you shot on location in uh, Penticton. And didn't you shoot directly across the street from where your wife used to spend time with her grandparents? The grandparents' house was right there? Yeah, they grew up in, in Dawson Creek, B.C., but summers were spent in Penticton with the grandparents who, I, I said to Janet on the phone one day, what street did you say? Because we shot the whole first week of the film, we shot right across the street from that house, which is bananas. And of course, that area, particularly, uh, it's, uh, Steve Campanelli really shot the hell out of, out of Penticton. It looks amazing. A lot of drone shots. You get a real sense of how gorgeous it is in the Okanagan Um and so it's it's what I say that it's small town and there's a it, there's a, there's a whole as a as a film it's a big picture it looks it looks great and it's really funny, but it does have that small town flavor and and I love there's a, a shot near the opening that shows a motel and I can't remember what the motel is called but it's it it just felt like it had been there for a long time yeah. like. It probably was, it always has vacancies. It's never sold out. <laughs> it's one of those kind of small town motels. And I just kind of love the flavor that that gave the film. You really get a sense of where you are from watching this movie. Yeah, I mean, in the opening sequence, when we see uh, Mike try to go to school, his gremlin doesn't start. It doesn't yeah. take place 30 years ago, but it sort of feels like it does. It has a throwback yeah. 80s sort of feel to it. And that, that gremlin makes me laugh every time. Now, how much improv is there in the film? Uh, you say charade was uh, something that came up. I know, or I've heard anyway, that on Will and Grace, there was a great deal of of uh, improv and playing around. Is that something you brought forward to this film? Well, I mean, the the, the truth to the lie is, is that uh, I don't, none of us on Will and Grace can take credit for the words. We mm. we didn't really improvise uh, at all. We, we certainly got new jokes handed to us, whispered in our ears, moments before shooting but we weren't making it up whereas in this film um steve when, when he realized that daniel who plays uh, the lead is, is so he's just hilarious he's like a like a young jim carrey or a young andrew <laughs> garfield very just um very liquid very fluid in his body language and he just said to daniel go and so our stuff we did improvise a lot in in the house that first week uh, there's the scene where i'm looking out a window and i'm describing a truck that has animals on it and i say some line about wolves and dogs fighting and I, I whatever i'm saying i have no idea i think it was the first day of shooting and i was just making <laughs> and daniel would go with it yeah he's got a couple of sequences that were just him you say that you took this on 
because uh, you love how Canadian it is and that you are looking to do more and more films that, that and television projects and, and work that represent Canada. Tell me a little bit about that. It's always a strange thing for me because I didn't grow up in rural Canada. I didn't grow up, uh, you know, the prairies. My wife has much more of a connection to that. I'm a Toronto boy, so yeah. I never really loved the idea that in order to get financing for a Canadian film, you had to have beavers and uh, and flowing rivers. But but I've come to be more as I moved out to BC and and I'm a little more in touch with with the beauty of this country and and just the complexity of it. I think now we can make series. In fact, there's someone at Netflix Canada that that really wants to make series that are the Canada that I, that I know, you know, which, which could very well be an urban story, but at mm -hmm. least it is unapologetically Canadian. I think that's what this movie is. It, certainly we have a lot of fun with the, the, the sights and sounds, but it, it doesn't feel like, uh, how do I want to describe it? I, I don't feel, think we've dumbed it down. I don't think we've made it for Americans, you know, with lots of age, jokes and sorry. And uh, I feel that we've made it for each other. It's a, it's a, it's a, it celebrates Canada rather than uh, making fun of it. I was reading uh, about your very early days and your first play from the first grade uh, was the man <laughs> with, with the hat. And what did you learn from that? Because I had heard a number of things uh, that you've sort of taken forward uh, from that particular performance in the first grade. I'd love if someone had come to me when I'm six or seven saying, in 52 years, you'll be asked about this production. I would have said, 52 years? Never lived that long. Um, yeah, that was the first, that was first grade. And uh, and it was just a play about a guy who sells hats and he wears them all at the same time on top of his head. And everyone else in the play plays monkeys in the tree and they steal my hats. Spoiler <laughs> alert, that's the whole, that's the whole play. Uh, and but I remember thinking, huh, I'm the title character. I am the man with the hats. And everyone else is supporting me. So I, even at six years old, I'm, uh, I'm star tripping a little bit. And then the, the next year, there was a play about a kingdom or something. And I thought, sure, I'm going to play the king. But I didn't. And it ended up Bruce Walker played the king. And I was the chef. And that's when I discovered uh, upstaging. <laughs> <laughs> I think I did a terrible uh, second grade French accent and um, and whatever I'd seen Billy Van do on the hilarious house right, of Frankenstein, right. you know. And tell me a little bit about uh, Grade 11. I know this is going back a long way, but I found this really fascinating that in Grade 11, you did a production of Godspell. Um, yeah. We're about the same age. And uh, Godspell was for that time kind of, you know, at the center of popular culture. It was a very popular show. Yeah. Lots of people did it. It's one of the first theater experiences that I had that really made a huge impact on me. But it had a huge impact on you uh, performing in it. And it was, from what I've read, when you said, well, this is it. I am I want to be an actor now. What was it about? Was it the show? Was it the response? Or was it the work? What was it? Uh, it was a real, as Jim Burroughs would say, a real lightning in a bottle. My, mm. I had a class that involved uh, David Furnish was in my class. Mm. Uh, uh, Damon D'Olivera, who's a great filmmaker, just had a film in the uh, Toronto Film Festival. My friend Helga, who's been in the business for 40 years. Um, it was just an amazing little group of people that was 
were so into it. And, and um, it was just, it was very much a coming of age for me. I've always said I, I measure my life in, in BC and AD before I played Christ and after I played Christ. <laughs> You're listening to Eric McCormack on the Richard Krauss show. His new film drink water is in theaters now and soon to be on VOD. And it wasn't even the production, which I think lasted two nights. Yeah. It was the assembly. You remember when you used to have to go to assemblies yeah. and they'd do it. Your leaders would do something. And then the math squad. And, and then it was like, okay, the, uh, the Godspell is on this Friday and Saturday and the cast of Godspell is going to do a song now. And everyone's sitting there, you know, half stoned and wishing it was over. But instead of it being, you know, Andy, get your gun or something, it was this rock beat kicked in and we were all just, and, and I just, when I finished Save the People and th that last note played, all these people that had never accepted me in 11 years of school suddenly were on their feet. And that's when I was like, oh, this is good. I will do this for a living now. Do you miss the theater? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, and um, I try to when I can. It's been uh, it's been a few years. Uh, I'm I'm attached to something right now that I hope 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 will go in 2024, um, which is the first ever uh, Broadway production of The War of the Roses. Oh wow! Wow. Yeah, uh, Fred Molina is attached to play the Danny DeVito part. Uh, Jason Alexander is directing. So it's it's just one of those things where the producers have most of the money they have all the elements it's just broadway is very competitive right now because there's mm -hmm. very few houses available to do straight plays um there's maybe seven that everyone's competing for mm -hmm. um in in broadway so um so with that i would love to get back love to get back to that final question about drink water tell me about driving the zamboni had you ever driven one before is there a special skill that looks like it's got a different kind of steering wheel on it than you um, would be used it to? was uh yeah it was kind of funny i'm not a hockey guy i mm. i'm a disappointing canadian that way <laughs> me too um, but of course everybody on that crew major hockey guys and there is a hockey thing a theme running through it my character is a big wayne gretzky guy and um, but he finally, not spoiler, spoiler alert, he finally gets a job riding a Zamboni and that I've never seen a crew so jealous. They just <laughs> like, they, did I touch your hands? Cause you've driven a Zamboni now. It was amazing. That was like that, their lifelong dream. All of them. That was Eric McCormack on the Richard Krause show. You can see him in Drinkwater in theaters and very soon on VOD. It's a really wonderful film and Eric's really terrific in it. He really brings a lot of humanity to a character who in any other actor's hands might've just ended up as being a comic foil, just a throwaway character. Here, he's really great and it was very cool to see him do something other than the fastidious kind of buttoned down character of Will Truman on Will and Grace. So check out Drinkwater in theaters on VOD very soon. A big thanks goes to Eric for taking the time to hang out today. Also, a big thanks to Brian Trottier. He played 18 series in the National Hockey League for the New York Islanders and the Pittsburgh Penguins. He won four Stanley Cups with the Islanders, two with the Penguins, and one as an assistant coach with the Colorado Avalanche. And I loved hearing his stories about the Stanley Cup. His new memoir, all Roads Home, A Life On and Off the Ice is a poignant and inspiring memoir of the people and challenges that shaped his life and career. 
I really enjoyed getting to know him, and I hope you enjoyed it as well. Big thanks to Brian Trottier. Before I let you go, I just wanted to let you know that next week, we have Billboard's Talk, New Country Artist of 2021, ACM's 2022 New Female Artist of the Year, CMT's 2022 Breakout Artist of the Year, and six-time CMA Awards nominee Lainey Wilson coming by to talk about her new album, Bell Bottom Country. That's next week on The Richard Crouch Show. Being brave is 18 gifts. We gave each other more than our hearts. With the help of a mason jar. Drinking watermelon moonshine. Cut the barn. I've already thanked all my guests for today. But of course, as always, my biggest thanks goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krause. Stay happy. Stay safe. Stay healthy. Stay weird. And we'll talk again soon.